Welcome back to the Gynecology Saloon, the podcast for medical students. We are recording at the University of Oslo, Norway. I'm Peter Fedorczak and my guest today is Gerrit Gregens. We are going to talk about uh, how oocytes are generated. On the request of a listener, Gerrit is also going to explain the process of meiosis. I mean the short version for medical students, uh, which is so important and so complicated that I cannot listen to it all too often. Finally, we are also going to explain uh, the, at least touch on the origin of most common birth defects. And as a bonus, Gareth is going to tell you uh, why you need exactly two biological parents of opposite genetic sex. So make sure you listen all the way to the end. In the gynecologist salon, we cover selective topics in reproductive physiology and women's health. If you have suggestions for a subject or comments to the show, uh, please contact us through Twitter at GIN Saloon. Now it's time to welcome Gerrit Kregens, uh, head of the clinical laboratory and research at the Department of Reproductive Medicine. Hi, Gerrit, and thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, Gerrit, uh, we start today with the ancestral cells uh, of the oocytes, the primordial germ cells, also known as PGCs. Uh, Gerrit, what is the origin of these primordial germ cells? So the PGCs uh, rise very early in uh, in embryo development around the point of gastrulation, um, so just a couple of weeks into the pregnancy. And um, it's probably worth thinking here that uh, we have um, really two lines. So we have the immortal germline and then the soma, which we can consider to be kind of disposable. So... The germline is what passes down through the generations as the genetic information from for an individual from one generation to the next. Um, and then the soma, the body as such, is really disposable. So it's just a, an appendage to pass on the information from ge- one generation to the next. So these primordial germs is kind of the, the stuff that would uh, pass the information from your generation to the next. Is it correct to assume? Yes, that's right. I guess the... Primordial germs has really have a fascinating pathway through the body, is it? Yes, absolutely. So um, when they first arrive during uh, gastrulation, um, they already start dividing. And then um, around the fourth week of development, then they begin their migration from the yolk sac to the gonads. Um, and then they arrive there around at the, at the what are now the developing gonads uh, towards the end of the fifth week. Um, and as they're migrating, they're also dividing. Um, and then um, on arrival, um, then they differentiate into the gonocytes. So eventually these become the oogonia, the sper- spermatogonia, which are the, the stem cells of the um, ovaries and the testes. So in fact, uh, like before the, the body in fact uh, is fully developed, these cells just go through it and um, locate from somewhere from the abdomen to the, to the gonads. Yeah, that's right. So they seem to have some, uh, some uh, chemotactic... Uh, um, uh, attraction and they also have a um, uh, some proliferation signals. So if they deviate off their path, uh, then they don't survive. I guess that there can be errors both when it comes to the migration of the cells and the proliferation. And what uh, what what can go wrong there? Yeah, that's right. And um, it's in fact uh, very interesting to see the kind of tumors that may arise along the um, this path where they follow. And in fact, many of the pediatric tumors um, we see these teratomas. Um, they occur on these pathways, and this would seem to be a sort of failure of quality control um, along the way. So um, the pro-survival signals and the proliferation factors seem to um, be persistent, even though they uh, they uh, should continue their, their route on. It's 
Exactly, where, uh, where these uh, tumors may occur, what may be the rarest position or location? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Um, y yes, I, um, uh, they, they can in fact uh, occur anywhere along the way, so I guess they can even, even in the brain. Yes, uh, this would be a pretty awkward position. And then uh, when these uh, primordial germ cells eventually uh, reach the future place of the ovary and the testicle, uh, what's going uh, on next? What's happening next? Yeah, so then we um, begin a differentiation. So depending whether they are in the uh, in the testes or in the, well, in what's eventually going to become the testes or the or the ovaries, then they would um, uh, continue dividing and then um, begin to differentiate. So um, for the the males and the, the spermatogonia, they divide in the testes, and then for the the females, it's the um, uh, the oogonia and um, and they um, they continue to divide in in fact in in large numbers. Yes, and uh, what what's happening then with these cells? They, do they end up as uh, stem cells later, or just? Yeah, so they eventually need to become uh, germ cells. So, uh, in that sense, it's their fate. So, um, perhaps the most fascinating element with the the female side is that um, uh, these cells just continue to divide. So, um, at around the fifth month of pregnancy, then one may have some seven million. Oocytes, oogonia that um, that are produced, and then um, at birth, and there'll be some six hundred to eight hundred thousand um, oocytes. So there's a first a proliferation into oogonia, and then a differentiation into oocytes, which is a transition from mitosis to meiosis. Okay, so then then oocytes would not generate new oocytes. So if you want to make a new oocyte, you need a new primordial germ cells. Is it correct? Yes, that's right. So the the once they've um, differentiated into oocytes, once they've uh, gone down that pathway, um, uh, they enter into meiosis, um, and then there's no further mitotic division. This uh, sounds pretty demoralizing. It means that uh, your uh, stock of oocytes is uh, it's not possible to renew. So you have some, and you're left with that. Yes, it's true. But there are um, a lot to start with. Um, and then uh, during the course of um, development and uh, through childhood and uh, again through adulthood till, um, uh, to menopause, then there's a, a very substantial loss of oocytes along the way. And what's the truth about these uh, suggestions that uh, one can regenerate the ovarian storage of oocytes, somehow replenish it? Yeah, I think there in fact is um, no truth in that. So it uh, appears to be um, in humans and in mice just a couple of days after birth and all of these oogonia have then differentiated into oocytes. Um, so there are no remaining oogonia or what we might like to call ovarian stem cells, which could then um, form a kind of a, a population for further replenishment later. So that was the story of the primordial germ cells that initiate somewhere around the yolk sac and then migrate through the body in, to reach the ovary and eventually create your ovarian reserve. Uh, now we need to go over to the second topic, which is probably the most challenging for most of us, is the meiosis. Uh, Gerd, why do we need meiotic cell divisions at all? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's um, certainly the most challenging to explain, especially without, um, without diagrams. So I think when it comes to meiosis, we um, need to think mostly about um, increasing genetic variability. So this is kind of a shuffling of the chromosomes. Um, so we can think about shuffling a deck of cards, but it's a little bit more uh, involved than that because not only are we shuffling the deck of the cards, we're also tearing them up and recombining them. Um, and these two levels, so the kind of 
um, random segregation and also the shuffling or the the recombining of um, homologous chromosomes means that we can increase the genetic variability from one generation to the next. And uh, that would uh, not be possible with uh, mitotic cell division, is it? No, so with mitotic cell division, then the two daughter cells are um, receiving identical sets of chromosomes, but for maybe one or two mutations. Yeah, okay, so the purpose is, uh, for the mitosis is to uh, make things same, whereas in meiosis to reshuffle, so uh, make it similar, not exactly the same. Yeah, exactly. If we dwell a little bit more into this uh, meiosis, can, can you tell uh, us how the process is uh, going in the oocytes? So, um, firstly, we maybe need to remind ourselves how the process goes in mitosis. Uh, so, in mitosis, we have uh, DNA replication, um, and then we have a condensation into um, the chromosomes, and then we see um, a nuclear envelope breakdown. Um, a spindle forms, and this is a microtubule structure that essentially catches the individual chromosomes and aligns them up in the center of the cell. And when all of the chromosomes are captured and aligned, then um, the cell can divide. And each of these uh, chromatids of the chromosomes can then be separated um, into the daughter cells, giving um, an identical um, set of chromosomes in each cell. Um, so then with meiosis, uh, the aim is not just producing a um, two identical sets, but in fact to introduce some genetic variability. Um, so what we want to do essentially is shuffle the chromosomes. Um, and this happens in, in two ways. Uh, the first is that chromosomes are going to be randomly segregated into the what essentially is the two daughter cells. Um, the other element is that they're going to be uh, reorganized um, so that uh, some of the, uh, the chromosomes will then... Um, Uh, form these crossovers, and then um, chromosome um, seg segments are going to be exchanged between um, two homologs. Um, and this increases um, the genetic variability um, into the next generation. Um, so in practice, how this happens is that um, uh, in the prophase nucleus, uh, the meiotic prophase, um, and then the homologous chromosomes find each other, um, and then uh, they do their crossover, and then they wait, and then the resumption of meiosis can occur uh, many, many years later. Um, so as we have already discussed, that we uh, the oocytes sort of enter into uh, meiosis um, around the time of birth, um, but then the final ovulation may happen already in the, in the 50s. So some 50 years can pass between the onset of meiosis and then um, the final resumption. Um, so this resumption occurs by a similar method, um, to the uh, mitosis, so we have um, chromosome condensation, uh, nuclear envelope breakdown, um, and then we have alignment on the spindle. And then the first step, and this is very important, um, and you may even see um, incorrect diagrams in textbooks, um, we see a separation of the homologous chromosomes. So that is to say what would have been from the maternal and paternal side um, with some crossing over. So those pairs of chromosomes, the homologs, Uh, randomly orientated so that we have firstly a, a random segregation um, and then uh, the cell division goes on and instead of forming a new nucleus going back into interface um, we have a new spindle forming after cytokinesis and we have um, what is a metaphase 2 spindle and it's there that the egg waits for the next signal which is fertilization before completing the second round of meiosis. So uh, then been been through this um, many decades of, of uh, process when uh, the 
chromosomes in the oocyte uh, are aligned, the homologs uh, found each other. That must be really fascinating that these uh, structures keep together for so many decades. Uh, how is that happening? How they find each other and what keeps them together? Yeah, so the, uh, the chromosomes are kept together by um, cohesion complexes. Um, so these are kind of ring-like structures um, that wrap around the DNA, um, keeping them locked together until um, what would be the anaphase of a, um, of a cell cycle. Um, so first the homologs are held together, um, and then there's the first division, and then um, the chromatids are held together before the second division. And uh, this is a very interesting area. Um, there's a protective protein called shigoshin that prevents um, those keys and molecules that are holding the chromatids together um, from being separated in the first round of, um, of meiosis. And um, this very long period of time seems to have some um, rather important um, effects. And uh, as many of you will probably be familiar with the reproductive, uh, female reproductive aging, we see that um, this holding together of the chromosomes seems to um, deteriorate over time and in the end lead to aneuploidies arising from meiosis. So these molecular pincets or so that keep these homologs together, if they fail, then uh, the segregation of the chromosomes can go wrong. Yeah, that's right. And often what we see, in fact, is that the um, segregation happens too quickly. So we see these individual sister chromatids appearing in the first, after the first meiotic division rather than after the second meiotic division. And uh, what would be the consequence of that? So the consequence then is um, that the, we end up with an aneuploid egg. Um, so half of the chromosomes in each round of division end up in the polar bodies, the first and the second, before and after fertilization. Um, and then uh, if that division doesn't happen correctly, then we either end up with too many, so that's typically a trisomy when we have three um, copies of a given chromosome, or if um, we have too few, we would have a, a monosomy, or in extreme cases, a nullosomy. So if uh, we take it again, so then the, uh, what you're explaining us is that the, the most frequent errors uh, occur during the first meiotic division, Yes, so mechanistically they occur in the first meiotic division when you have premature segregation, um, and then you see the error really coming to light in the, after the second meiotic division where you end up having maybe three or one or no copies of a given chromosome. So the concept is, is that these sisters, uh, that the chromatids that constitute the individual chromosomes that getting separated earlier than they should have. Yes. So they don't wait, wait until the the proper segregation time, which would be at the second round, but they already uh, get uh, disjoint during the first one. Yeah, and there are, in fact, many different kinds of errors. So we can also have um, the the pair of homologs being segregated to either the egg or the polar body and as a whole. Um, but the, the separated sister chromatids or the prematurely separated sister chromatids seems to be the most common problem. Given that the uh, humans have 23 pair of chromosomes, uh, it must be an astonishing uh, like, uh, feat for the oocyte to keep everything in order. Is the oocyte a good bookkeeper or uh, you frequently see errors? Yeah, it's uh, very difficult and I think we need to put this a little bit into context. So uh, we have a situation where an egg is the largest cell by volume in the body um, and then we have... Uh, a great issue with the mechanics of the situation. So we need to build a, a large spindle to capture all the chromosomes, and then these chromosomes need to be separated, and at the same time a very large cell um, being divided. 
And um, we do, in fact, see aneuploidy occurring um, very frequently um, after meiosis. And this um, happens more and more frequently with age. So after the age of 38, the incidence increases quite dramatically. Um, but it does seem that in younger women, the rate of aneuploidy is not that high after meiosis. So some studies say it's as low as 3%. Um, other studies say it's perhaps 15 to 20%. And that may have something to do with um, either looking at uh, egg donors, those that would otherwise be considered to be um, fertile, or looking at infertile populations that we find in IVF clinics. But uh, after a while, the frequency of these aneuploidies increases. What uh, what is the reason for that, and why it's happening uh, around the end of the reproductive age? Yeah, so we think it is part of the natural aging process, and that it's loss of these cohesins and loss of perhaps of uh, of shigoshin as well, which protects the uh, the cohesins during the first round of uh, mitotic division. So it appears just to be a, a, a longer aging effect. I understand. So you lose like these structures that keep this. Uh, the chromosomes together, yeah. so that they're going to be more error-prone. That's why you're getting more uh, aneuploidies. Yes, and it appears that these um, ring structures, these cohesins, cannot be um, cannot be added after um, the meiotic prophase. And uh, when this uh, and the meiotic prophase is already kind of over, or at least uh, pretty much accomplished by birth, is it? Yes, yeah, so it seems with um, with humans that um, all of those um, oogonia, the ovarian stem cells, have then entered into um, uh, meiosis by the point of birth. There appears maybe to be a few days or a few weeks afterwards where it would still be the case that there will be some oogonia that had not yet differentiated. But uh, with other words, it's really a, a kind of a disheartening message because it would mean that you're accumulating molecular defects during aging that is really beyond repair. So you can't possibly fix these oocytes, can't you? Yes, at least the oocyte is um, is prone to uh, to generate some some chromosome errors, at least in the later years. And what what are the what are the clinical consequences of this uh, increased meiotic errors? Yeah, so perhaps the least in the fertility clinic and uh, uh, amongst those trying to conceive, the uh, the biggest uh, issue is that it gives rise to an increase in infertility. So. Fertility of women decreases with the reproductive age, um, and this really comes down to an increasing number of aneuploidies that we see over the years. And by the uh, late 40s, uh, mid 40s, then the aneuploidies are um, maybe up to the high 90s, 100%. Um, and the reason that we um, these aneuploidies are so important is that um, when we have these nulloploidies, and in almost all monosomies, um, we have a failure to implant, and then um, eventually a spontaneous abortion if implantation does occur. Okay, so you have like uh, multiple defects. First, that uh, women are less likely to conceive, and if they conceive, they are more likely to experience an abortion. Yes, that's right. And uh, these two factors, is it, uh, I mean, uh, how fast this uh, change is happening? Like uh, at which age approximately when you you see in the clinic that fertility declines and yeah so we're seeing an increase in aneuploidies um, really from um, the late to mid thirties so around thirty five there's a, a beginning beginning of an increase so it can be kind of looked at as a sort of a hockey stick um, and then after age thirty eight then the the frequency of aneuploidies increases and then as I say by the mid forties it's it's very prevalent. 
And uh, probably this, uh, as you say, the hockey stick uh, kind of curve uh, showing the increase of an unemployed is with the band around 35 years-ish, uh, which is uh, probably a good reason why fetal diagnostics or uh, pregnancy screening is uh, uh, kicking in. So uh, that's where typically one suggests recommending uh, uh, like invasive procedures for yeah, and that's absolutely right. And we perhaps then can uh, can discuss a little bit what happens when um, a viable pregnancy is formed. So in many cases, we have um, trisomies that, uh, in fact, um, uh, implant, but then they don't continue their development. So the embryo um, then was spontaneously bought. However, in some cases, we have um, late-stage pregnancies, and we, in fact, even have live births. So when we think of um, chromosome 21, that would give rise to Down syndrome, um, there we have... Um, a quite a good development to term um, and then when it comes to trisomy 18 trisomy 13 which are described as edwards syndrome and patel syndrome um, and then we have some some live births and uh, just a few percent of children that survive to um, their first birthday what is the reason that these chromosomes are especially prone to trisomies so these are relatively small chromosomes um, compared to the much larger ones uh, the ones and twos and threes um, and um, they have a greater risk of not forming a single crossing over event, um, and therefore they may have a uh, less um, stickiness as such, so there's fewer cohesive molecules holding them together. So this is uh, not really a kind of coincidence that trisomy 21 is probably the most uh, prevalent trisomies that uh, was being conceived and uh, g getting to birth. This is like some deeper molecular causes for that. Yeah, that's right. So it's less likely to... Um, uh, to form crossover events, less likely to be stuck together well, and also um, relatively small, so carrying fewer genes. And how about the sex chromosomes? Those also uh, sometimes happen to uh, come with uh, uneven numbers or unproper numbers. Yeah, that's right, and that also seems to be an issue with um, with pairing. Given these are not um, homologists, they have um, uh, these uh, pseudo autosomal. Uh, regions where they form their their pairing events. Um, however, it seems that it's quite common that we have um, errors occurring there. So in Kleinefelter, then that would be a XXY or even a triple XY. Um, and then on the other side, we have Turner syndrome, which is a, a monosomy, so a single X that gives rise to a, a female fetus. And then come to this question that uh, consider a female fetus that uh, is uh, uh, generating its uh, uh, germline that we you start to explain and the generating primordial germ cells that uh, lack one of the X chromosomes. What would happen with these cells? Would they be able to go through cell division later and form more sites? Yeah, indeed, that is a, um, a challenge. And I think in the, the Turner syndrome uh, patients that we see uh, frequently is uh, absence of ovaries. And uh, that is uh, probably because like uh, lack of the pair, or the homolog pair, mean that the cells can't complete their cell division, so probably getting depleted earlier. Uh, these uh, Turner patients, they typically infertile, all of them. Yeah. After talking so much about meiosis, we're going to take a short break. Why do you need exactly uh, two genetic parents of exactly opposite sex to get it done? 
Uh, yeah, that's a good question, and it may be that we um, we don't. Um, so there are some species that, uh, in fact, can produce uh, pathogenetically. Um, so some lizards and snakes, for example, um, can um, manage to get by without the male, which may be um, disturbing for some of us. Um, but in uh, in mammals, it um, we we don't see these parthenotes, at least not the pure parthenotes. Um, so a system of imprinting, genetic imprinting, that is to say, uh, differentially methylated regions, um, mean that we. We don't, in fact, see these um, parthenotes in mammals. So, in fact, you need both the maternal and the paternal chromosomes to get it done. That's right. Well, poor humans, huh? Thank you for listening to the Gynecology Saloon and make sure to follow us on Twitter at GIN underscore saloon where we are waiting for your feedback, comments and suggestions. And uh, please stay tuned for next week uh, when we will discuss male factor infertility. Goodbye.